Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Hasta la vista, baby. And the winner is... We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Hello, and you're very welcome along to this week's We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. Coming up, Andy McCarroll will have the lowdown on all the big movie stories from the week. Expendables 4 is set to film. Has anyone been really waiting for that? Mind you, I have been waiting for Creed 3, but the sad news is Stallone says he's not involved. We'll have more on that story along with the rest of the big movie stories to come very shortly. Plus, filmmaker Paddy Slattery, he'll be going through the career of one of the great directors, William Friedkin. That's all to come very shortly on We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Now when We Love Movies, we are going to take a look at the big movie stories from the week, one of which is the Suicide Squad trailer, which has broken all records in terms of views. Before we chat to Andy McCarroll and Chris Wasser, here's just a little bit from the Suicide Squad. Here's the deal. We fail the mission, you die. If we find out any information you give us is false, you die. If we find out you have personalized license plates, you die. What? No. If you cough without covering your mouth. Harley, although that isn't an open invitation for you to cough without covering your mouth. And there's a little section from the Suicide Squad trailer, which has been breaking all sets of records. I can't wait to see the film. I think they finally cracked the Suicide Squad under James Gunn, who has written and directed it. For those who don't know James Gunn, he's probably best known for helming the Guardians of the Galaxy films, and he's set to start work on Volume 3 fairly soon. But Andy McCarroll and Chris Wasser join me. Andy, how many views has the Suicide Squad trailer clocked up? Because it was released the same week as Black Widow, but pretty much left Black Widow in the shade. Yeah, Black Widow got 70 million views, which to be honest, I thought was high enough considering, you know, this film's been put back and put back and it's one of the, the lesser characters in the MCU. But Suicide Squad absolutely blew it away, more than double, and for an R-rated trailer as well, 150 million views has broken the, the record that was previously set by Deadpool 2 and Logan. It looks absolutely bananas. He has got the tone perfect. And if you're Marvel, I'd say you're just kind of smugly sitting back on, thank God we resolved all those issues and he's back for Guardians 3. Because had this come out and he was still kind of left in the lurch in relation to the Marvel movies, I'd say they would be absolutely kicking themselves with like that, that they've missed out on this. So I'd say Marvel are, are very happy as well. DC are going to obviously be very happy. It looks insane. You've got Sylvester Stallone as like a giant walking, talking shark. You've, you know, America's favorite John Cena swearing up a storm, saying he's going to do stuff I can't say on a, on a PG show. It looks like absolute barrels full of fun. And that's what you expect from James Gunn. Like he took a talking raccoon and a tree that can just say his name and made you care about them. I'm dying to see what he does with this band of misfits now. It looks really, really good. Idris Elba's in there too. And we've got um, Margot Robbie returning as um, Harley Quinn and Joel Kinnaman. He's back as well. But I think this is a soft reboot, as they would say in the industry. And I think it's pretty much going to leave the David Ayer film very much there on the sidelines. The, the title is The Suicide Squad. Like, this is the one. Moving on, Andy, another story which has caught a lot of steam this week is... Ryan Johnson, he is set to pocket a huge amount of money from Netflix. So all those Star Wars detractors, they will be up in arms over this deal because they can't stand the man. But little does he care. Tell us about this big deal. Yeah, he has uh, shocked the world by announcing that Knives Out is going to get two sequels. And the, the, the standout for me is that this deal is worth a reported 400 million for Ryan Johnson. I'm going to 
stroke of the year of the Star Wars fans, but even more and say, Last Jedi has been you know, the best Star Wars film probably since Return of the Jedi. I was actually interested in the world he had built up and where that story was going. And then they made Rise of Skywalker and just completely bundled it all over the line. But yeah, Knives Out, I absolutely loved. I thought Daniel Craig as Benoit Blanc was absolutely insane. Chris Evans in a sexy sweaters. You know, he was so good in that. I was going out looking at Aaron sweaters, thinking for some reason I would end up looking <laughs> in any way the same as he does in that. Like the, the man could wear a bin bag and he'd still look sexy. So I had delusions <laughs> of grandeur after watching that film. That's how good that was. I'm dying to see it. It was basically like a game of Cluedo come to life. And a film that they, they you don't really see anything like that, like a good murder mystery. I know we had the, the Poirot films a while ago that didn't really work for me. They took themselves way too seriously. This down to like the ridiculous, you know, as, as Chris Evans's character called it, the Kentucky Fried Chicken accent. Absolutely loved it. I really like Ryan Johnson. I loved Looper. I loved Brick. Like The Last Jedi as well. So I'm very curious to see what they do with Netflix. Let's be honest, their original content hasn't been great. So maybe this could be the one that can turn them around on that. It's definitely going to get people to sit up and take interest of what they've got coming down the pipeline. Chris, Knives Out for you. I I found it a film of two halves, if I'm being honest with you. I preferred the first half a lot more than the last. But I did enjoy the world that Ryan Johnson created. But I preferred if the whole film had stayed within the confines of the house. Because once it moved out of it, I felt it got a bit murder she wrote. As opposed to, as Andy mentioned, the Cluedo type of feel. Yeah. But where did, like for you... Knives Out, did it work? Would you even be interested in sequels? Absolutely. It did work. I thought it was fabulous. I really did. Um, and I, I, I love the fact that in terms of the murder mystery genre, um, you know you know what happens in the first 10 to 15 minutes. And it's more about kind of, you know, this unraveling of this crazy rich family who just, you know, squabble over 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 the fortune of the patriarch. And it just, it, it, turned, it turned the genre upside down and inside out. And that's what I loved about it. The only thing I would say is, uh, and this deal is just so extraordinary because Ryan Johnson, I think it's, I think it's a 400, 450 million deal to make two sequels. But in terms of, you know, the bring home pay, Daniel Craig will walk away with $100 million and is also involved in the development of the character because the, uh, 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 and of the sequels because the two films will revolve around his detective character. And let's face it, he was the best thing about those knives out, about the, the, the original. So that's fine. We don't say takes home $100 million. That's, you know, good luck to them. I'm, I'm sure, you know, they deserve it. I just, I, I, I'm just a tad upset about the fact that what made that so special knives out was that it was such an original thing it was so, it was an original story that you know uh, uh wasn't based on a book uh you know did game it was just ryan johnson just came up with this and it made a fortune and it was critically acclaimed and we don't get many of those kinds of films anymore those original you know blockbuster uh, uh record-breaking uh uh you know mainstream offerings to, to then kind of, you know, turn it into a franchise, it's a bit of a shame because Ryan Johnson is so good when he gives us the original films. Brick, Looper, I know he did the Star Wars thing. I know that's not... Uh, I'd love to see Ryan Johnson take that money and develop a new kind of sci-fi picture or a new drama or, you know, give us another murder mystery, but, you know, have, have it involve different characters. That's maybe me to being too, you know, pernickety and wanting the world to be a better place. I, I At the same time, I still think, look, these sequels might be something special. Um, and I don't think Daniel Craig would do it. You know, he's kind of, he's better at picking things these days, let's say. So, I think, good luck to them. Yeah, I think Daniel Craig found his mojo with that character in yeah. Knives Out. I think it's one of the better things that he's done. Um, 
post sort of the bond sort of stuff. I yeah. know we were still yeah. waiting for, but like it's the one that's made people sit up and take notes. I know a lot probably felt that he would have had an, another franchise with the girl with the dragon tattoo. And I thought Fincher did a stellar job with that adaptation, but yeah. unfortunately it just didn't make the money at the box office. And they've never been able to really do anything with Elizabeth Salander since because Fede Alvarez's film just came and went. But I think what Craig, I, know, I think he really wants to hitch his wagon to Ryan Johnson because he knows that there's a nice payday to be had here. But also, Ryan Johnson was able to get a, a decent performance out of him. Uh, gentlemen, just want to move on now to another sequel, Creed 3. Michael B. Jordan, Andy, this is his directorial debut. It's a big jump for him now to helm this. But there's news emanating this week that Sylvester Stallone's not going to be involved. Do we know why? Yeah, um, last time Creed 2 came out, he posted a, a video on Instagram basically saying goodbye to the character. It was a great little video of him standing around a, a trash can that was on fire, reminiscent of the first film. And he said, this is it, this is the end of the character walking away. And then when Creed 3 was announced, I just automatically assumed, you know, still I want to be back. It's a basically, we call it Creed, but it's, a, it's basically a Rocky film as well. But he's confirmed that no, he's not going to be back this time around. And I think that's going to have huge ramifications for that film. Like Michael B. Jordan be under a ton of pressure already making a Rocky film while directing it. And you don't have Rocky in it. We'll talk later about why that might be why he's not in it. I, I can't see him not being involved in any capacity. I think that will be a major hit for the film. And I think that will turn a lot of people off going to see, you know, it's Creed, but there's Rocky is so tied into that character as well. Mm. It feels like a, a huge miss if, uh, if that is true, that Stone isn't coming back. Because the big thing about Creed and even the Rocky films is that in Rocky, his surrogate father was Mickey. And because he loved the man, he adored the man. And with Creed, Adonis, he's never known his real father. He's been in and out of juvenile detention centers. And with Rocky, there's this stability like Mickey had brought to Rocky. And Rocky becomes this de facto type of father figure. Moving in now. Who's going to, how do you replace that father figure? And I know there's a few strands that are still to be developed because we have um, Adonis's wife is, is losing her hearing. So that's going to huge have a huge part to play, but he's got to maintain um, his success and the, the heavyweight title. But with Rocky, I know at the end of Creed 2, it, it did feel like there was closure. I, the only way I could see Rocky really coming back was, is to kill him off. And maybe they don't want to do that just yet, but that seems like maybe the fitting finale for Rocky that, you know, he is an, an older man and maybe there's a, a swan song to be had, but maybe they want to try and just stretch this out to maybe Creed 4. Chris, what about you? Uh, no Rocky in Creed 3. Is that a massive mistake? Or do you think maybe it's uh, maybe a bit of breath of fresh air for the Creed character to sort of develop itself uh, away from Stallone? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, in terms of killing the character of Rocky off, Gordon, you can be damn sure Sylvester Stallone in another film would figure out a way to bring him back from the dead. <laughs> um, I think, look, it could prove to be a breath of fresh air in that, you know, Sylvester Stallone might, you know, after all of these years, have a bit of sense when it comes to the character, realize that, you know, it's the prequel series that we were talking about uh, a, a couple of weeks back. That that might, you know, he might want to work on that. That's probably a better idea than, than, than keep, you know, than continuing to bring up this character in a sort of like one last bout. I mean, I know he's a trainer at this stage, but it always feels as though for the last couple of films that this is it, this is the end, this is the end. So maybe he's like, look, okay, we did things gracefully and, and respectfully the last time around with this character. Let's move away. It could also mean that Michael B. Jordan's creed uh could find you know new leadership perhaps from his mom 
or mm. from you know some of the other trainers that we saw in the in, in in the first Creed film. You know, there was a few supporting characters there who just had a few minutes of time on screen, and you're like, okay, well maybe he could go back to them. Maybe he could explore, uh, you know, uh, uh, his uh, his childhood. Uh, you know, there has to, I, I think basically there has to be someone who will replace that trainer role. And Michael B. Jordan is a clever actor and filmmaker. I don't think he would move ahead with this unless he has something down, unless he has something good down. So I trust that, you know, Sylvester Stallone's out, but someone else is going to be in there to, to, to uh, you know, to even things out. If I'm wrong, Gordon, then I don't want to see this film. Well, you know, <laughs> right. you only have to look at, like, say, Rocky Three, where, you know, spoiler alert for those that haven't seen it, but Mickey dies and you're thinking, What? This is unbelievable. You know, the linchpin for Rocky. But then what do they do? They completely flip things like the way Fast and Furious always does. And you've got suddenly a villain becomes one of the good guys and Apollo Creed suddenly becomes his trainer, which was kind of, which was inspired in a way. So I bring back Drago. Bring back, bring, bring back Mr. Does that mean Mr. T might be in it? Is that where where you're going with this? I'm thinking something big could happen here. Absolutely. You never know. There could be some other shot of redemption. God, that sounds really interesting. Imagine Drago and uh, Mr. T could be in it. Clubber Lang, wasn't that his name in it? Clubber. Uh, Yes. Yes. Clubber Lang. Andy, you mentioned something there. You kind of slightly teased it, that there might be a reason why Stallone isn't coming back. Could that have something to do with another franchise that he was once involved with that he's trying to resurrect? Let's write this film with Drago and Clubber Lang right now. Let's just get this down and get this, make sure this is what he's actually going to be working on. But yeah, um, Randy Couture, of all people, uh, has said that the Expendables 4 is going to start filming this four, or this four, this fall rather. Uh, yeah, absolutely zero interest in this. I thought this was a fantastic idea. We're bringing all the, you know, the great 80s and 90s action heroes together and making this, you know, bombastic nonsense. And then they just made it PG and made it as bland and interesting as you can, which was kind of an achievement in itself to bring all these like mega Hollywood superstars together and just like off the top of your head, can anyone tell me what the plot of any of the Expendables films was or anything that happened in them outside of, you know, that cringeworthy scene where, Bruce Willis and Arnold Schwarzenegger kind of trading, you know, their catchphrases back and forth. And Bruce Willis looks like he's just been woken up from a nap. Actually, on that, the only thing I remember from those films is Sylvester Sloan's Instagram rant where he called Bruce Willis a lazy SOB because he didn't want to work for less than a million quid a day. So if nothing else, we got that from the films. Well, Expendables 4, no, I'd much rather him, you know, take his time and show back up and create three. Like, who does he throw into it now? Like, Steven Seagal said he won't do it because he says that uh, Stallone's producer on the films, Avi Lerner, I think that is the man's name, owes him money. So as you won't see. But then again, you, you'd be hard if he gave to get Steven Seagal a bottle of hair dye and a sandwich, he'll do the film. So <laughs> I, I wouldn't worry about that now. Same with Van Damme. There's, well, you could be a much more legal substance to tempt Van Damme back. But yeah, uh, there's nobody on that set doing well that is going to say no to them. I think it's worth mentioning too that uh, only only this week Sylvester Stallone uh, said that he was finally finished. Uh, uh, you know, um, I don't know what what how you would describe it, but he has finally finished cleaning up his director's cut of Rocky Four. Uh, so I'm not sure how he is planning on releasing that. If he wants some sort of theatrical release for the end of the year, because of course the the, the film kind of culminates on this uh, Christmas Day or New Year's uh, New Year's Day. Going to put it on streaming services, or maybe he'll keep it for next year. But he might want that to be his next big Rocky moments. So I don't know whether it's like, oh, a Creed film might get in the way of that. But either way, we are get we are going to see a different version of a Rocky film we've already seen in the next twelve months, and he's involved in that. So maybe that might have something to do with it. 
Okay, well, um, it's it's in Stallone. He's constantly busy, and he's got the Samaritan, another film that he's finished production on as well. I think they're in the editing room with that. But Expendables Four. Is there any old action star that you think should be in Expendables Four? I the only two that I think I, I'm going to kind of stay close to home on this would be Liam Neeson and Brosnan. I, I I'd, I'd be intrigued to see if they could actually fit into the mix here. Uh, what about yourselves? Is there anyone? I don't know. AD, do you know Michael Dudikoff? I think he'd be interested from American Ninja. If anyone remembers those films, they'd be of a fine vintage. <laughs> um, but I'm just going to put you both on the spot. Andy, anyone of interest that you'd like to see in it? Uh, Jackie Chan would kind of be the obvious one for me, but I think he's 106 years old and every bone in his body has been broken six or seven times. Nothing else. That's, I'd love to see Steven Seagal just for the fact that he's like, 200 pounds overweight now and seeing you know stuntmen running towards him so he can wave his hands in front of them and they do cartwheels into the background so I'd get a great kick out of that but other than that like you said you're going back into king of the kickboxes territory then to, to pick someone who hasn't already been in one so it's, it's difficult enough I think you'd have to be looking at Asian cinema and people like Nico Uwe's and maybe um, Tony Ja people of that ilk uh, it'd be amazing to see what they could, could do could you picture a fight scene with Tony Ja and Steven Seagal you'd have to like put him in slow motion and like put Steven Seagal up you know, speed about two hundred percent there. That actually, yeah, just for that, just to see Seagal completely embarrassed by Tony Jaa would be worth the price of admission alone. Oh, like Seagal has just become an absolute walking parody. Chris, um, just before we move on, is there an action star of the past that should be an Expendables for? Absolutely, Linda Hamilton. That's it. She killed everyone. Ah, Linda Hamilton. Yes. Oh, here's another one to throw in. Do you guys remember Cynthia? Was it Rothery? Right. Yes, I yes. do indeed. Yeah. She'd be brilliant. Uh, was it the China O'Brien films that she was in? Yeah, she'd be great. She still looks exactly the same as well. I follow her on Instagram, which is something I'm sounding very pervy saying now. But yeah, <laughs> she looks like she hasn't aged a day since the 80s. And she posting videos daily of these incredible workouts she's doing. I'm just like, oh my God, how are you still able to do that? Well, she's there's a um, great podcast with um, Scott Atkins and he interviews low. It's called The Art of Action and she's interviewed and she seems so nice and um, great to see her back in something like Expendables 4. Andy, thank you so much for going through all the big movie stories. We're now going to move on to all things streaming. And it was out last week was God, Godzilla versus Kong, which is now, let me get this clear. Is this the fourth film in the MonsterVerse from Legendary Films? Because yeah. we're talking Godzilla. There was Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Then there was Kong, Skull Island. Yes, we've got Godzilla versus Kong. Chris, unless you're on board with these films by now, that's the, the attraction uh, here because you just it's all been culminating to this point to see these two behemoths knock seven shades of you-know-what out of each other in a city setting. That's pretty much it. Almost akin to Rampage uh, of sorts. But now we're getting these two titans going at it, hammer and tong. So the human side of things can be left on the sidelines. What about you? Has the monster verse uh, been of any interest? Did it do anything of note? Uh, yes and no. It's been incredibly hit and miss. Uh, I thought the first Godzilla film um, loved the fact that, you know, uh, we were going back to almost uh, a 60s or 70s style of disaster movie or monster movie. Let's have this starry ensemble. Uh, Brian Cranston was in there, Ken Watanabe, Elizabeth Olsen. Um, uh, you know, let's take things seriously and, and, and wait a while before we reveal the monster. Let's not, you know, give it away just yet. Let's do a Jaws on it. Uh, but then it became something else entirely in its, in, its, in its second act. It was actually a bit of a versus movie itself. And that was a bit disappointing. And I think the signs were there from the beginning that you know this was a, 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 a 
you know, a franchise that was already unsure of itself, you know, that was already a little bit, you know, oh, is Godzilla enough here? Do we need to throw in more? Yeah, yeah, let's do more, more, more. Um, And it's been kind of like that the whole way through. Probably up until now, the best film has been Kong Skull Island. We're going to just forget about Godzilla King of the Monsters. It it was a bit of a, a tonal disaster. It was just a very messy film. Kong Skull Island showed us that we can have... You know, that stereo ensemble, like what I just said, we can have a giant, you know, ape um, and we can throw in like, you know, a period setting. I think the film was set around Vietnam, but we can have incredible fun with it. Just don't take it too seriously. Uh, you know, just 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 it's all about people are here for the for the, for the giant monkey. Um, so overall, it's been kind of, you know, it's it's a franchise by name. But there's nothing really that ties all of these films together in terms of logic or in terms of a, a storyline that makes any sort of sense. Godzilla vs. Kong, it has surprised a, 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 an awful lot of us because, you know, at the, uh, especially at the moment... It's done quite well, Chris, hasn't it? But, so yeah, far? but I mean, box office figures, Gordon, they don't make any sense anymore. And you look at, you know... I love to, uh, to look at Scott Mendelson's articles on a Sunday to see what kind of films are making what kind of money at the box office. But over the last 14 months, it's just made very little sense when you see something like Tom, Jer- Tom and Jerry made an extra $6 million. How did it do that? What, what does that mean? But with something like Godzilla versus Kong, you're seeing figures that are 10 times that size. And I'm wondering, so people are actually paying to watch this online. And also in China, people are paying to go out and see this in cinemas. And as a result, Godzilla versus Kong has become the third highest grossing film of the year so far the biggest english language film of the year um and also it looks like it'll stay that way for the next few months at least until we get a marvel property so film people are actually paying to see this film which is fantastic and also i'll hand it over to you andy because i know that you've watched it i'm not really sure what you've what you you thought of it they seem to really like it too andy what do you think there now because adam wingard he's the director of this and he's made the recent Blair Witch sequel and he made Your Next. He's kind of one of those directors, you know, he's very promising. This is a big canvas for him. Now you love your monsters. So did it live <laughs> up to the expectation? No, I was, like you said, I've been building this up for months. And then last week when I heard he was being put up for, for Thundercats as well, I was in my element. This is an absolute mess of a film. Like the whole point of these films is we try and come up with something flimsy of an excuse to get, you know, Kong versus Godzilla to fight each other because it's the human characters. But it's like he took it as a challenge to make the human character so unbelievably terrible and unmemorable that it completely distracted you from the fact there's a giant radioactive lizard and, you know, a hundred foot tall monkey punching the head off each other. I seen an interview with Alexander Skarsgård and I have to say, I admire the confidence on this guy. He said, well, my character is kind of a mix of Indiana Jones and Michael Douglas in Romancing the Stone. No, he is the mixture of Sam Worthington, Scott Eastwood's love child. He has the charisma of a wet mop. (laughs) Elia Gonzalez seems to have wandered in from auditioning to play Draco Malfoy in Harry Potter because pretty much every line or every scene she has ends with the line, wait till my father hears about this. And it's, what are you talking about? And even like the, the villain, quote unquote, his motivation is, I want to create this giant monster that will... You know, humans can use to defend us against people like Godzilla, people like Kong, because they're destroying buildings and they're killing hundreds of millions of people. And you're like, oh my God, you're sick and twisted. Like, no, that is a perfectly logical explanation or a perfectly logical reason to come up with. Like, if monsters were destroying my hometown every couple of years, I'd be like, yes, what a plan to stop this. It's just there. Like, the fights are spectacular. I do 
enjoy the fact like it's like trying to you know weightless things hitting each other when they hit each other it actually it looks and feels real if you can believe that there is a fantastic lethal weapon psych gag in this which you know you I wasn't expecting a giant lizard versus monster movie but overall i was just bored it nothing in it made mm. any sense and nothing in it made me care and i think i kind of agree with chris which sickens me a little every film in this series has just been a missed opportunity and it's been the hope that's killed me every single time the new one of these comes out okay this is going to be the one that that they get right and i really thought this was going to be it but now i'm kind of having a a revisionist statement i was very happy to see adam wingard take on thundercats and face off but now i'm looking back on well he done death note and blair witch and this so maybe i'm not as excited as i was seven (laughs) days ago so maybe let's shuffle him off this and give it to somebody else do you know what I would just say, um, having watched the film, I did watch it with my son who did consume quite a lot of chocolate while he watched it and he adored it. Like he was bouncing around the place. He was so excited. Now that could have had something to do with the chocolate, but I could have looked at it through his eyes and I can see how I think us old footy duddies would be like, oh, no, I can see that the litany of problems here, but through my son's seven-year-old eyes, I think maybe this film is going to work for a, a, a lot younger audience that maybe aren't going to see all the blemishes that we saw. Chris Wasser, Andy McCarroll, pleasure as always. Thank you so much for your time. And that's it for part one of We Love Movies. But coming up after the break, I'll be joined by filmmaker Paddy Slattery to go through the career of William Freakin, the man behind The French Connection and The Exorcist. We Love Movies is back shortly. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Welcome back to part two of We Love Movies with me, Gordon Hayden. Now we're going to focus on the career of one of the great filmmakers, William Freakin. It's a new series here on the show where we're going to take a look at each week a director of great prominence, someone who's really had an impact on the film industry. And this week, we wanted to turn our attention to the filmmaker behind The Exorcist and The French Connection, William Freakin. Before we talk to filmmaker Paddy Slattery about the career to date of William Freakin, here's just a little bit from Freakin, just talking about his career in film. The most important things that a director does is, first of all, pick the, the story that he or she is going to make. The next most important thing is casting it. And once you've cast it, what the director does next is to get to know the actors as well as a very good psychiatrist will know the psyche of his patients. And you get to know what are those things that would cause uh, the actor to rely on sense memory, to reproduce the emotions of fear, joy, anger, sorrow, whatever it may be. So you get to know them so that you can push those buttons when they have a problem with certain scenes. But then really what a director is doing, outside from selecting the camera positions and setting the tone of the lighting and stuff, is the most important thing a director does is to provide an atmosphere where the cast and the crew can do their best work, where they can feel safe and protected, and not that you're judgmental. You're not going to be judgmental, and you're not going to allow anything judgmental to take place on the set so that the actors are free to do their best work. Now, if they've been well cast, 
I'll let you in on a little secret that you don't have to direct. There is the great William Freakin, and he is the director under the microscope this week. And joining me is Paddy Slattery, writer and director of Broken Law, which you can now see on Netflix. Paddy, great to chat to you again. William Freakin, as a filmmaker, Paddy, there's so much to discuss with him because he's also quite notorious behind the <laughs> scenes. Uh, but we'll get to that in just a sec. But for you, what what is it about him that you think makes him a real standout filmmaker? Oh, my God. Um it's the thing about freaking for me hiring director maybe 10 years ago i sort of went down a rabbit hole on youtube and on the internet trying to find directors that would inspire me and and this so like freaking is sort of on the top of the the pile when it comes to he's a great sort of scholar of, of the art um, you can you can find hundreds of hours of seminars and interviews where he he's he's, he's a highly intelligent and, and sort of philosophical but also quite sort of eccentric in, in his approach to filmmaking and that sort of inspired me but but freaking himself sort of is sort of born in that sort of golden era i think it was called new hollywood back at, you know the early 70s following the success of independent films like easy rider for example like filmmakers like freaking sort of turned up in la with these young autouristic sort of filmmakers that wanted to make their own you know stories outside of a studio system mm -hmm. so he was one of those new wave of sort of directors coming in and you know so it, like most directors you get your start in the industry and you work your way up but from the get-go with his feature film career he, he was completely a standout he, he was fearless he was loud he was bold he was creative and, and inventive and he also honored the old sort of style, the French noir and even the Hitchcockian sort of era. So he was very cinema literate. So for that reason, it was sort of almost obvious that a filmmaker like Freakin would, would rise to prominence quite quickly. And he did cut his teeth in television initially. I think he worked on uh, the Alfred Hitchcock TV series for a while. I think yeah. he was one of the few filmmakers that Alfred Hitchcock didn't interfere with his TV movie because... It was, it was Alfred Hitchcock's Presents and it would be one of these, yeah, yeah. you know, every week to be kind of like a, a, another another murder mystery. But Freakin had said that Hitchcock would always get involved and meddle in the editing room and he would nearly take away the project away yeah. from the filmmaker that had been hired. But but a lot to said to Freakin, the fact that he never touched your film <laughs> yeah. massive kudos to you so he definitely had been spotted at an early age to kind of go hmm if if hitchcock's not messing <laughs> around with your work then you're on the right track how did he break into the industry as a matter of interest paddy oh well i even like mentioned hitchcock there legend has it you know again these young independent filmmakers are coming into a studio system that have a sort of a tradition a sort of a behavioral tra tradition and and i think hitchcock actually chastised freaking uh, on the earliest days of working uh, with him for not wearing a tie to work. And, and that would sort of give you a sort of an impression of how things were run in Hollywood. It was, you know, it was quite ordered and regimented where these young upstarts were coming in with their own ideas and notions and no, not, almost no respect for sort of the form. Um, but I mean, like if you look at some of his earliest work, which is very hard to find actually the earliest TV work, you can tell immediately this guy knows what he's doing. He has great confidence in sort of the human psyche. So, I mean, it's no surprise when uh, he, he drops the French connection on, on people's door and people stand back and think, whoa, where, 
where are we going with this? You know, and, and it's almost like the birth of a sort of a renaissance of the 70s in independent cinema. An incredible piece of work, French Connection, and he would go on to win his Oscar for that. Sort of leads me into my next question here, Paddy, about his most standout films. French Connection being the obvious one, of course. The Exorcist, a film which, when you think about when it comes to the Oscars, the Oscar, the Academy, now granted there's thousands of members, but horror films have always fallen short when it comes to getting the praise and the claims they deserve. Yeah. And The Exorcist pretty much booked that trend because it was nominated for a whole host. I think it ended up winning two in the end, one for Best Adapted Screenplay for William Peter Blatty. And I think the other one might have been more of an, a technical award. Uh, it just escapes me now what that award was. But um, freaking, like these two seem to be two of the big pillars of his work. Sorry to put you on the spot here, Paddy. But, uh, <laughs> but what would be your favourite freaking films? Uh, look, The Exorcist, I think, is untouchable in, in that genre. I love the horror genre. And I love watching a horror movie on my own with my phone switched off. And I, I just love to be terrified and know what the hell's going on with me. But The Exorcist, for me, is like the holy grail of the horror genre. It, it's untouchable. For me, it's like, it's like the godfather of the crime genre. Um, it's like the life of Brian of the comedy genre. It's just so out there on its own. And the, the, I think the Academy at that time had no other choice but to look at it rather than look around it because it done something absolutely uh, astronomical for that genre at that time. Um, but I mean, there's no denying. I think that's his masterpiece. But um, for me, I Sorcerer, I think for me is oh my God, it's riveting from start to finish. You feel like you need to go for a hot bat after watching it. <laughs> so visceral, so intense and so gripping. And it has aged so well. Um, I mean, I, I watched Sorcerer for the first time maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And I didn't really I didn't really appreciate the, the legacy of it, how it was badly received at the time and how it sort of rediscovered an audience and all that kind of thing. So I watched it quite innocently. And I only watched it again recently after, I think, watching Mark Kermode uh, talk and, you know, giving it really high praise. And I watched it again. And is, you know what, despite the fact that and most most classic films anyway, never really get really embraced in their initial time of release anyway, because I, I think it gives, you know, audiences need time to catch up with the brilliance of it. And mm-hmm. so for me, it's like from start to finish for me, you're not quite sure where he's going with structure, where he's going with narrative, where he's going with drama. All you know is you just got to strap in and hope for the best because freaking what I love about him is he's almost like the Tarantino before Tarantino was ever invented. You know, he is fearless in what he shows you on screen and what he doesn't show you on screen. And, and I love that. I love the mystery. I love the excitement of not quite knowing what you're going to get with freaking. And Sorcerer is that one for me. When it comes to underrated films, I was saying this to you before we started recording, Paddy, that I love cruising the Al Pacino film. That is, again, there's a sort of a giallo quality about it. For those that don't know, giallo are these murder mysteries from Italy. Yeah. But it was like, who is the killer? And Pacino, yeah. he has to go undercover into the, the gay district in New York. We're mm-hmm. talking 1980. Back in the early 80s, New York was a very different place. Uh, yeah. the whole Manhattan area to what it is now. The likes of 42nd Street were real sleazy. You know, there was a real divey quality to him. Crime was escalating. The crack em- epidemic was just taking hold. 
and yeah. it, there was a there was a lawlessness to the whole place until Giuliani yeah. took over and then had a zero tolerance zero tolerance approach to hold the whole thing. But I I've always been attracted to cruising because of that um that murder mystery quality. Who is the killer? Will Pacino get his man and the yeah. the strain of the case that it has on Pacino? I absolutely love it. Are there is there any of his works though that you kind of go oh people really need to see this one? Yeah, and you know, I think you're actually right. Cruising is one that should be watched by everyone. Uh, it's, I mean, when he made that film, it was actually an extraordinary choice for Freakin. He could have done anything at that time. And and even uh, Al Pacino, for example, could have done anything at that time. But they chose this daring project. And the reason, I think at the time when they were shooting, there was pickets on the streets, there were people trying to shut it down. And, and for good reason, because at that time you had uh, gay rights campaigners really getting a foothold and, 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 and getting their voice out there. And at the same time, there was this horrible undercurrent of, of homophobia as well on the streets. So, so both sort of, sort, of, sort of mind frames were at odds with each other. So when people knew, heard that Freakin was making this, this film and, and they realized the nature of this film, they were... There was a lot of worry of what he what he was going to do with the genre and was he how he was going to portray you know gay men and that kind of stuff. So there was a lot of fear about what film he was going to make. And what I love about Cruising is that it is very classic in a sort of uh, you know in that genre is sits very comfortably in that genre. But I love the ambiguity of it. I love the moral ambiguity as well. And it doesn't strike me as for me about. Uh, a straight man playing a gay character it, it sort of sort of transcends that like most of Freakin's films it actually explores the sort of moral compass of human beings so you kind of look behind the superficiality of the, the story and you find yourself asking yourself these sort of existential questions of yourself so for anyone I think wants to see uh, yeah just a, a brilliant drama I think Cruising is one of the, it sh- certainly should be on their list It'll definitely stay with you for days and you'll be there trying to question, what does that ending mean? Yeah, it's, one of, yeah. it's one of those films. I, I don't want to spoil it. Well, let me it, ask you, let me ask you, Gordon, what does it say to you without spoiling it? Mm. What was your interpretation of the end? And if it's possible to say. I took from it that Pacino, for those that have seen it now, I know for those that haven't seen it, I, I'm going to be talking like I'm in riddles here, but uh, for those <laughs> that have seen it, right, because I'm, I'm trying to da- delicately dance around without spoiling it. But I think Pacino comes away from the experience completely changed. I think right. it, it has had such a huge impact on his life because you only have to remember at the very beginning, he's just a cop on the beat, but he's yeah. told that he'll get an opportunity to skip all the ranks and become a detective if he takes on this job because he'd be like the perfect man for the gig that he'd be able to immerse himself in that world and not get found out mm-hmm. as being a cop undercover. So he knew yeah. that he, he was doing it to, to go up the ranks. But I think he kind of at the very end, he's going, was it worth it? Look how much it has changed me. Will I ever be the same again? That's what I could take from yeah. it. But at the first time I watched it, though, I didn't get that. <laughs> I didn't get it at all. Yeah. I, I, I had a different experience. From it. <laughs> I think he kind of tapped into maybe there's parts of my my sexuality that I haven't yeah. uh, I haven't didn't realize were there that maybe that has changed me. So I think Freakin definitely has his interpretation, but I think the audience can come away with yeah. nearly two ways of, of reading it. Uh, I'll throw it back to you, Paddy. I agree, yeah. 
I don't know. Did you come no, away the, the same? Oh, that no, definitely. The like the, the question of, of sexuality uh, it certainly makes us examine our own uh, sexuality. That's for certain. I mean, uh, what I love about it again, the, there's no definite line, and you're on one side or the other. Human beings are human beings, and circumstance. Uh, and time and can determine where we might go and how we might feel in our lives. So for that reason, absolutely sexuality is called into question there. Now, just before we wrap things up with all things William Freak and Paddy, I did mention as well at the top that he is a filmmaker that has a notorious reputation. And we were even saying on last week's show as well that the stuff that Freakin got away with on his sets would never be tolerated now. In fact, he would be kicked off a film set the way he carried on. Are there any particular stories of note about his behavior that you can tell us? Oh my God. Well, just with the French connection, uh, I know it's starting off with Gene Hackman. Uh, Gene and William, I think, they felt that his character, he, he couldn't get angry enough for his performance. And I think so, of course, Freaking, that's sort of a, an invitation for him to try different abstract and uh, method techniques to, to get uh, Hackman uh, angry. So he would deliberately do like about an extra 20 takes of, of Gene Hackman running through the city. And, and Hackman at that time was slightly out of shape, you know, so that would uh, push his boundaries. But he also, after Gene felt he would do a brilliant take, uh, he'd look over uh, at Freaking and Freaking would be deliberately shaking his head and sighing and going, oh, God, that was awful. Let's do it again, and almost provoking him. And, and, and it got so bad that I think Hackman, on the second day of shooting, was threatening to leave the set. <laughs> uh, but I think one of the most notorious stories was on the set of uh, The Exorcist, for example. He would, uh, like he would fire off a blank you know, cartridge from a gun off screen to try and evoke a kind of a, a look of terror on the face of, of the actor, um, William O'Malley, who's playing the, the priest Father Dyer. He would shoot off a gun unbeknownst to the actor. Uh, I'm sure other people were in on it in order to and, and to capture that immediate. I mean, you try that nowadays on a film set, you would not only end up in prison, but you'll never ever work in the film industry again. And what I, I, what I think is funny is that you can see all these seminars and Q&As and conferences with Freakin' now on YouTube, I mean, five, six, seven years ago, where he very openly shares these stories and very proudly talks about them in a kind of, look at me, I'm a very creative director. This is what I had to do to get a great performance out of what he considered a, a B-rate actor. And you're thinking, hold on there, certain human, you know, moral, moral questions to be asked here, you know, so I don't know. Have you any stories yourself or? Well, Paddy, the one that I've heard goes, yeah, we're going back to the Exorcist set and this is toward the, the end of the film now, but I won't get into too much detail, but Jason Miller's character, Father Karras, he's on the ground and he's not in good shape at all. And good old William O'Malley, who plays Father Dwyer, who is a real priest, by the way, he's meant to be in a, in a, in a terrible state because his good friend is lying on the pavement. He's decided he's going to administer the, the last rites. For freaking, he just wasn't being emotional enough. And they yeah. did take after take after take. And it wasn't happening to the point where freaking pulled O'Malley aside and hit him a smack across the face, threw him back into the scene. 
And the take that you see in The Exorcist is that poor man having to administer the last rites after getting a big slap across the face. And that's what was printed. And Freakin thought, there you go. Listen, I had to do it in order to get that scene. <laughs> <laughs> try do that today and see how far it gets you <laughs> yeah, absolutely oh, unbelievable but he's some character I, I suppose just finally finally on freaking he did have somewhat of a resurgence back in 2012 with killer joe but he's an elderly man now i i can't imagine we're going to see another film from him but Overall, how do you think people will look at William Freakin as a filmmaker? Because he's had plenty of ups and downs, Paddy. But yeah. where do you think, uh, how will he be positioned in years to come, do you think? Well, let me just say really quickly, although he is uh, an elderly man, he's the youngest elderly man I've ever seen in the industry. He's as fresh and as sprightly as, as a young 50-year-old filmmaker. So... I, I, I'm, I'm hoping there might be another one left in him. But you mentioned Killer Joe, for example. Killer Joe, I only watched recently for the first time. And you know what? It's a nasty, dirty film, but it's brilliant. It's, it, it almost makes, uh, like I said, Tarantino's uh, Pulp Fiction look like a, a, a romantic comedy. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's brilliant. But I think, I think Freakin will definitely be considered one of the greats and one of the greatest, especially during the new, uh, the new Hollywood period of the 70s. And it's probably the, the greatest era in cinema history over the last 100, 110 years. The 70s was certainly the, the best, um, the best uh, time. And Freakin was at the, the forefront of that time with the French Connection, uh, uh, what you call it, uh, The Exorcist, even cruising at the time, Sorcerer. They're, they're films that are going to be appreciated for the next 50, 60 years. And you can't really say that about too many other directors. Very true. And we'll leave it on that note. Paddy Slattery, pleasure talking to you as always. Next week, we're going to be examining the career of Danny Boyle, another incredible filmmaker. So can't wait to hear what you have to say about Danny Boyle. But for now, Paddy Slattery, thank you so much. And don't forget, I mentioned it earlier on, you can see Paddy's film, Broken Law, which he wrote and directed. It's currently on Netflix. And that's our lot for this week on We Love Movies. Thank you so much for your company. We'll do it all again from eight on spin. From me, Gordon Hayden, and the rest of the team, enjoy your weekend. <laughs>